we're going to go ahead and continue where we left off. So um, I, I'm just going to try to wrap up what we have done before. Didn't finish the lesson, but I want to keep it moving along. And so I'm hoping to finish off last week's lesson decently quickly and get into our new lesson today. Um, so we've been, um, according to our title slide here, we're in a series. It's basically a series on theology. Part two is the doctrine of man. And last week we were on lesson 11, which I took a number of thought, a uh, number of uh, weeks on that one. So lesson 11, um, looking at the, the topic of sin. So I'm going to wrap up this morning some final thoughts on that. In the interest of keeping it moving along, I'm not going to go back and review uh, some of the lessons uh, points that we've already had on this lesson. Uh, but we'll go ahead and, and just jump right into it on our next slide here. Our next slide entitled, What Happens When a Christian Sins? Okay, so we have a first thought on our slide. Okay, what about our legal standing? Our legal standing before God. And the good news is that our legal standing before God does not change. Okay, so we could ask, I suppose I could back up a little bit. Again, I don't want to, I'm going to keep these moving along. Feel free to slow me down and say, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on. That didn't make sense. Or hold, hold on, I've got a question about that. Interrupt as often as you like. Within reason, you know, don't get kicked, you know, don't go all wild on me on that. Okay, but um, Christians do sin. The Bible tells us that, I think, especially 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, back first John chapter one talks about that um, talks about um, if you um, walk in the light and we're told to walk in the light okay? uh, not to walk in darkness okay? um, but we are to continue, you know be ones who have I can feel myself wanting to get off on a rabbit trail here no, I'm resisting don't do it okay uh, that's, that's what some of my stumbling was I was thinking about it uh, but the Bible teaches us that a Christian has the, uh, has the ability, because we wrestle with our sin nature, to still do things that are missing the mark, okay, where we don't get things the way God would have them, which is what sin is, as we've defined a number of times. So when you miss that target, God says, hit that target, and you don't hit the target, you've sinned in some way, what do you do? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, speaking to Christians, because the whole book of 1 John is written to Christians, if you look at the subject of it. In fact, uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 tells us the purpose of the book of 1 John. Uh, it, says, uh, that it says that it's addressed to those who believe on the name of the Son of God, so it's addressed to Christians, and then it says why? That you may continue, and I'm paraphrasing it, um, kind of modernizing the words because it's a progressive tense in the verb, that you, uh, if those of you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you can know that you have eternal life and that you can keep on believing, progressive tense, um, believe and continue believing in the name of the Son of God. So the whole book of 1 John is written to Christians for the purpose of encouraging Christians confidence in their faith, confidence in their salvation. And there's a lot of things in uh, the book of 1 John that are evidences like, oh, okay, are you really a Christian? John says, well, here's some things that would be true about you. That whole walk in the light, which I was trying to avoid getting off on that one, but that's one of them. A Christian's life is not characterized by sinful activities. Their life is generally characterized by walking in the light. But it does not mean that we always walk in the light at every moment. So what does a Christian do when they sin? First John 1, 9, if you confess your sin, 
He is faithful and just to forgive you of that sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And again, that's not addressed at non-Christians. That's addressed to those who have already accepted Christ as Savior, and yet sometimes we can sin. But here's, here's the first point. Your legal standing before God has not changed. It's not all of a sudden, whoop, you're not a Christian anymore. Okay? As is sometimes taught that a person can lose their salvation, uh, but there's a doctrine of eternal security that we're not going to get into right now. That is, that your legal standing is secure before God. Okay, but that doesn't mean that, oh, okay, oh, phew, all right, cool. No, no, I, I can sin, no big deal. Uh, because that takes us to the second point on the slide. There is a consequence, you know, when Christians sin. And so our second point, our fellowship with God is disrupted and our Christian life is damaged. So there is a consequence uh, to this. And it's not to be um, taken lightly. It should not be a point that seems like, oh, oh, okay, you know, okay. If I sin, I'm still a Christian. Okay. Oh, well, okay, you know, fellowship with God's damage, you know, Christian life, you know, there's some problems. Okay, but I'm still okay. No, you're not still okay. Um, now, if, and sometimes they think we're, you know, uh, Christians are tempted to think that, but I don't think it should be underestimated. Uh, let's take the first thought, fellowship with God. It should not be underestimated. <clears throat> the benefits of a life when you're living in fellowship with God versus the, benef- versus the lack of those benefits when you lose fellowship with God. Right? Life lived without the continual fellowship of God, because this is what the Bible teaches, uh, that we can that our sin can separate us from God. Now, of course, it, it originally separated us in our legal standing, in our relationship. You're not even in the family of God. And that's what happened. We all inherited that sin nature uh, from Adam. And we're all born with not having that fellowship with God. But even after you're a Christian, sin can cause problems. Uh, for example, Ephesians 4, verse 30. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, we're told. Because we can grieve God, we can cause him grief and then that can cause issues it causes you can cause issues in our relationship uh, for example it can bring his chastisement upon us um, we can actually get a, a good spiritual spanking at the hand of god hebrews 12 uh, tells us um, so uh, hebrews 12 verse, right there in verses 8 9 10 approximately when God needs to, he chastises you, much like a father would do the same with his own children. And the Bible actually says, if you sin and you don't get that kind of chastisement, well, that's because you're not his child. Sort of like if I, you know, if I had a child misbehaving around me that wasn't my own child, and I wasn't a teacher on duty at that time, and they weren't one of my students, I would be looking saying, hmm, okay. We could use some correction right about now, but not my kid. Um, so my wife and I chastised or disciplined, um, sometimes spanked, sometimes time out, sometimes you know a look, sometimes a verbal warning to our own kids, but we didn't tend to go around the church and do that with everyone else's kids. Um, and so, yeah, God actually says, well, a person that doesn't have my chastisement when they, when they do something wrong, well, that's because they're not my child. And so the Lord may allow a non-Christian to sin, and he doesn't chastise them for it. 
but a Christian he will, he says in Hebrews chapter 12. And he does that because he cares about our growth as a Christian. And if we resist that, well, we're just resisting the help and grace of God. Um, but um, we also have in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Um, to put earnestly. And so we need to have that earnestness. Um, but there's been a number of times in my life where I realized that there was something I do and the Lord was working in my heart that I should change that. And I had the thought in my mind, if I do not repent, if I do not submit to the Lord in this issue, uh, sometimes we don't want to. We like what we're doing. Um, but if I don't, I am in a position where I'm rebelling against God and I'm going to lose his blessing on me, at least in part. It damages it. And so that's been a motivation at times to say, well, I don't want to live that way where God removes his blessing, even if it was only in part. And perhaps he loses his, um, I lose his direction in my life. See, there's uh, verses in the Bible, and I didn't come today with these particular verses, but they're just some that popped in my head right now. There's verses in the Bible that say that he answers the prayer of those that are obeying his commandments and, and doing those things that are pleasing in his sight. Well, if I'm not doing his commandments and not doing the things pleasing in his sight, then he doesn't have an obligation to listen to my prayers. And sometimes that happens. A Christian's not been obedient, and you come to the Lord in prayer, and you want God to do things for you, and he doesn't hear. He doesn't listen. and He's not under obligation to do so. Um, sometimes we get upset at God, and, and we say, well, but wait a minute. I thought the Bible says that if you have faith, the grain of a mustard seed, you'll ask whatever it is that you want to ask, and, and it's going to be done. And then I ask God for things, and it doesn't happen. Well, sometimes we're asking, because it's, as James put it, uh, we're asking according to our own desires, our own uh, lusts is the word he used, which means just like a strong desire. Sometimes it's because we're not asking in the will of the Lord. Jesus said he always did the will of his Father. Um, we're, we're told that, you know, whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Sometimes what we're asking isn't going to glorify God, so it's inconsistent with the will of God. Maybe it's that. Um, but sometimes it's just we're not living in obedience. And so um, do we want a life of fellowship with God, having his blessing upon us, having a life maybe such as that we would have our prayers answered? Well, our legal standing might still be okay, but there is a consequence to the second one. Um, it's, it's not like it's uh, insignificant. And so um, our... I've you know, talked uh, some about our fellowship with God, but kind of wrapped up in that. Um, our Christian life can be fruitless, so we can stop uh, seeing the blessing of God upon us such that you know, maybe we go and we work in Awanas and we, you know, maybe we teach a Sunday school class, but the Lord doesn't bless. Like We don't really see fruit from that. I mean, we have a lot of activities. You know, I work here in the Christian school. I work with kids, but... Do we see kids growing in Christ, maybe becoming Christians, or maybe growing in their Christian faith? And maybe the Lord just withdraws his blessing in that, and, and that can be disrupted. Um, we see you know, the, that general principle taught very clearly in John 15, 4, 
Um, it's the vine and branches passage. Abide in me and I in you, Jesus said. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. And, you know, we can't be like a, um, a branch off of a grapevine that says, I'll just cut myself off and I'll go live over there away from the, you know, the, the trunk and the, the root system. It's not going to happen. We cannot do anything positive spiritually and, and have spiritual fruit unless you know, we're tied into Christ. And so the next verse after that, verse 5, he says, Without me, you can do nothing. And so sin can cause this to happen. There's, there's some serious consequences uh, to it. And so, but um, it goes further than that. It, it can cause damage in other ways. Uh, for example, in, um, uh, in reading a quote from a um, person, he's now passed away. I um, first became familiar with him till he, when he was still alive. So he hasn't been uh, dead for that long, but his name is Ravi Zacharias. It was really well known in Christian circles in Christian apologetics. Um, so much like, and now his name is uh, slipping my mind, evidence that demands a verdict. Um, uh, it's not Tim LaHaye. Um, yeah, evidence that demands a verdict is a very well-known book that has um, that is on Christian apologetics and um, McDowell. Yeah, I was coming up with McDowell and was still struggling with his first name. Okay, Josh McDowell. And, uh, but Ravi Zacharias was another name out there. Um, he did a lot of speaking and just a lot of logical defenses of the Christian faith. That's uh, what Christian apologetics is about. Well, apologetics in general is a reasoned defense of something. Um, well, here's what he said. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Now, I feel like I've heard that quote before. I, I kind of wonder if that's actually original with him. So the source I got it from referenced him. But I'm wondering if in referencing him, he was actually quoting someone else. Because I feel like it, it goes back. I almost want to say um, in my mind that it went back to Jim Elliott, who was one of the five missionaries that was killed by a South American Aka Indians in the 1960s. Uh, five missionaries were murdered by the Indians that they were trying to reach, and it might, I, I, but I couldn't confirm that. But anyways, it, it, who cares? Someone quoted it. Uh, Ravi Zacharias and maybe others. Yeah, that's what sin does. Uh, now, it's a misconception among some that you can sin and get away with it. No, you cannot. No, in fact, it could be a reassuring thought. No one sins and gets away with it. Sometimes we feel like people get away with it. Sometimes crimes go unpunished, and the person who did it was never found. Man, they got away with a the crime. They were never punished. No, no, they, everyone stands before God someday and answers for what they've done. No one got away with it. And whatever man would have done, you know, God's punishments can be a, a lot harsher than you know, whatever lifetime in prison or even an execution might have happened, depending on the crime. Um, but sometimes um, we can think, well, you know, People get away with sin. No, they don't. And that's true of us, even Christians. You don't get away with it. There's consequences. So we've got to get that out of our head. All right, let me keep it moving along. Um, so First uh, Peter 2.11, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. And these things, these fleshly lusts, or these sinful desires, 
they're counterproductive to our well-being and our health. Uh, there can also be loss of reward. 1 Corinthians 3.12 and following tells us that. I think I'm going to not read those verses at this time. But, of course, the Bible teaches that um, there's a judgment seat of Christ. Christians will stand before God someday, not in judgment, legal standing. We've already been exonerated because of the righteousness of Christ. But we'll stand before God someday, and there's rewards given for things done in his power and his strength. But many of our works may be cast aside and burned up, um, such as you might be familiar with the wood, hay, and stubble example that's given in Scripture. All right, um, so then my last point on this slide is worded this way, um, the danger of unconverted evangelicals. Well, when I uh, was reading and looking at this, it made me think of something that's called the halfway covenant. Um, Now, I don't know if you've ever learned the halfway covenant, and if you did, I don't know if you would have to pull that out of the back of your head somewhere from whenever you did last talk about it. But if you go back in American history, especially if you are in any way either studying early colonial history or if you're studying uh, the history of education in our country, um, you may come across um, this halfway uh, covenant back then. Um, You have to go back into Puritan Massachusetts, Puritan New England. So what they did in the Puritan church, and I think it's probably a mistake, the Bible doesn't say you can't do this, but they desired, um, these Puritan Christians that came over from England, to set up a society that was like a shining beacon, a city on a hill, they use phrases like that, to show the world how, how great it could be to have a society founded on the word of God and have this basically be run and controlled by the Bible. Sort of like the Old Testament Israel did when they had a theocracy and, and it was kind of the religious book of the law became the law of the land. So they attempted to do that in Puritan New England. But they ran into a, um, a little bit of a problem because one of the requirements they had early on is that in order to vote, you had to be a member of the church. So now all of a sudden there was a motive to be a member of the church other than you, religious reasons. Um, like I, I, if I want to vote in society, I have to join the church. And so the, uh, the Puritans, kind of many of them in their theology were Reformed theologians, so um, that's kind of along the lines of you know, what's characteristic in uh, many Presbyterian churches. Um, it's a, I don't want to get into it too, too deeply. It's called covenant theology, and it, it relates to the idea of baptizing the infants as a sign of the new covenant, much like the uh, the circumcision of the Hebrew baby boys was, a, was done as a sign of the old covenant. You had baptized the babies as a sign of the new covenant. And that did not guarantee their salvation. However, um, the thought was that, um, that as a family essentially dedicated their child to the Lord and, and with the influence of the family on the upbringing of that child and having... Uh, had them baptized as a sign of the new covenant, then it was more likely the child would grow up and become a Christian, and uh, this would work out better. So, but they recognized, though, 
not all kids grew up and became Christians. And of course, some of those that grew up and became, did not become Christians had kids, they didn't try to raise their kids to be Christians. And you started getting a number of people in Puritan society that were not Christians. Um, so what did you do with these people? And they, they came up with these halfway covenant, um, as in someone who wasn't really a converted Christian, still had a way of being a church member, and then you could still vote, but you weren't officially recognized as a Christian, and it kind of got all muddied up in the process. But we run into a similar problem in, in perhaps our society, in our Christianity now. What about a Christian who does some of the things that we talk about uh, a person needs to do to be a Christian? Um, I, th- I think sometimes... Maybe we say some things that could give the wrong idea. Well, in order to become a Christian, here, you pray this prayer. So here, here's what you have to pray to God, and, and this is what you need to do to become a Christian. And on the surface, it's not a bad idea, but if someone is insincere in that prayer, if they're not really calling to God in that prayer, uh, for example, if we're ever witnessing to a young child and we the child gets scared through what we've shared with them. They get afraid of hell, and and they don't want to go there. And then they're told, well, just pray this prayer, and then you don't have to go there. Well, it's, okay, I'll pray the prayer then. Whether or not they really understand the gospel or whether or not they, their heart is turning to the Lord in salvation um, might be like getting insurance, you know. So sure, you know, if, you know, if, if I die, I'd like life insurance, you know. And so nothing bad happens to me, but they might be unconverted, and so I think in, in recognizing that, um, many in Christianity, especially uh, one particular pastor, um, uh, preached on this a lot back in the 1980s and, and really focused a lot. He, he used a term called easy believism. And in, the, in that term, it, it was recognizing that many are saying, oh, well, just, just say this, say that, do this, do that, and then you're a Christian. Um, the craziest example I've shared before in Sunday school um, was hearing from a, a speaker that came through our church relayed this, that he was traveling, and, and was, he was a traveling speaker, so he was in a town, and he didn't know the people in the church that well, and he happened to be riding in the car with, I think, someone from the church, and uh, he was driving, and, and they pulled up to a street corner, and the guy rolled his window down and yelled out to someone on the corner, Say Jesus! And the guy on the corner is like, I mean, that'd probably be what I'm doing, like, what? <laughs> and he said it again, say Jesus! And the guy said, Jesus. And he rolled up the window, and off they went, and this speaker's like, well, what was that about? <laughs> and the guy said, oh, that guy just got saved, because the Bible says, if whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so he just got, you know, tricked that person into becoming a Christian person, probably didn't even know that it happened, and and so obviously that's a serious misunderstanding of the gospel. Um, most people don't go to that extreme, but still sometimes we can say, well, because we were able to pressure someone, sometimes I think certain door-to-door, uh, sometimes it's called like door-to-door witnessing or door-to-door cold calling can be that way, where maybe you get into conversation with someone, and if you're kind of like a high-pressured salesman, you can kind of pressure someone into uh, getting to the point of praying what we sometimes call a you know sinner's prayer, and walk away thinking, okay, I, I help them come to know the Lord as their Savior, and it could be in their mind, oh, I'll pray any prayer to get you out of here. Some people don't like to stand up 
to, um, you know, they don't care for confrontation, and some people don't like to stand up to, and, and confront. So some people kind of are a little shyer about that. I see this a lot, by the way, as a principal. I, it's different families. Some, if there's a problem, they don't really want to come and talk with me about it because that'll feel like a confrontation. And even though I try to make it very, you know, as safe as possible that you feel free to come and I don't get on you about that or, you know, but still I know some people just don't like that feeling. They don't want to feel like they're, you know, come and tell me that they don't care for something that's going on in the school. Some people just don't want to say it. And um, so anyways, easy believism as the one pastor called it, unconverted evangelicals. And so um, it can be a danger uh, that's there um, that we don't just tell someone, your legal standing's fine because you prayed a prayer. Yeah, excuse me, chapter and verse where it says just because you prayed some words, the words like a little magic spell, hocus pocus, and turned you into a Christian whether you believed it or not. It's not really what the scriptures teach. Um, not that we can't help people with the prayer. Sometimes people don't know, you know, they're, they're not familiar with praying to God. They don't really know how that works. It, it feels weird or they don't know what words to say. We can certainly help them with the words of a prayer. It's not really going to work, though, unless from their heart they're calling upon the name of the Lord. As the Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's got to be repentance and confession, faith or belief. Okay. All right, let's move it on. So some other thoughts and questions uh, here. What is the unpardonable sin? Matthew 12, verses 31 and 32, uh, touch on something that is along these lines. It says, what shall I say unto you? All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. So is there, is there a concept of a sin that cannot be forgiven? Uh, verse 32 kind of rewords it this way. Whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus. You can be forgiven for that. It, can be, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. Neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Now, there are a number of views. I'm not going to take the time to go over, um, but let me read them. Some have thought that it was a sin that could only be uh, committed while Christ was on earth. So this was something at that time, but did not pertain after that time. Okay, another view. Unbelief. This is an unbelief that continues until the time of death. Therefore, everyone who dies in unbelief has committed the sin. Like you've committed, you've sinned against the Holy Spirit and have continued sinning against the Holy Spirit all the way to the time of death. Therefore, maybe the thought is you never got saved. Therefore, it's not going to be forgiven you. That's what some have taken it to mean. Okay. Um, some have taken it this way. It's referring to serious apostasy by genuine believers and that only those who are truly born again um, could commit the sin, which would result in the loss of salvation. Now, we're not going into this doctrine of eternal security in depth today, okay, but um, I think there's uh, plenty of verses that teach in the Bible that um, once saved, always saved. That if you're a Christian, you don't lose your salvation. That doesn't happen. Okay? And uh, so, now I think if you tie that back to the easy believism or the, the problem with unconverted evangelicals, I like what's been tacked onto that. Once saved, always saved, if truly saved. And so if someone was never saved in the first place, they might appear to have been a Christian, then appear no longer to act like a Christian, 
It might, it might be doing things that you say, wow, that's, you just wouldn't expect that of a Christian. Well, maybe they were never a Christian to believe in, uh, uh, to begin with. But anyways, we'll probably come back to the topic of eternal security in another Sunday, but not today. So then another view, um, unusually that, that this sin is being referred to in the verses, un, is unusually malicious, willful rejection and slander against the Holy Spirit's work um, attesting to Christ and attributing uh, those works to Satan. Okay? And so I think this is would make uh, would, would be the, the view that would be most consistent, I think, with uh, scriptural teaching on the topic. So just like we mentioned in, um, in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, we can't do anything unless we abide in Christ. Um, we cannot do anything spiritually without the help of God, without the grace of God. Uh, in the same book of John, uh, John says this, No man comes to the Father except the Father draw him. No human in their sinful condition of their own accord has spiritual life within them where they rise up and say, I want to be different. I want to be a good person. I want God. I want to confess my sins. It does not happen without, and so the Bible teaches a lot on this, without the Holy Spirit convicting them of sin. So what happens if a person offends the Holy Spirit? does things against the work of the Holy Spirit, it is possible to grieve the Spirit of God and quench Him. Uh, those are language that's used in the Scriptures. To put out the fire of the Holy Spirit's conviction, um, it is possible to do that. So Grudem says it this way, the context of Matthew 12, Jesus had just healed a blind and mute demoniac. Okay. So that he could see, he was blind, and he could speak, he, he had been mute. The Pharisees attributed his ability to cast out demons to Satan. They said, well, here's how you're able to do that. Because they couldn't deny the miracle. I mean, how do you, they knew this man. It wasn't just a traveling carnival you know, act where Jesus came through town with some sidekick who was only pretending to be blind. This was someone everyone knew. They knew this person and the problems he had, and Jesus heals him. So the context indicates, uh, reading Grudem again, uh, that Jesus is speaking about a sin that is not simply unbelief or rejection of Christ, but one that, so he, he numbers them here, number one, it includes a clear knowledge of who Christ is and of the power of the Holy Spirit working through him, two, a willful rejection of the facts about Christ that his, um, his opponents knew to be true, three, slanderously attributing the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ to the power of Satan. And so, in such a case, the hardness of heart would be so great that any ordinary means of bringing the sinner to repentance would already have been rejected. Persuasion of the truth will not work, for those pe these people have already known the truth and have willfully rejected it. Demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit to heal and bring life will not work, for they have seen it and rejected it. In this case, it is not that the sin, the sin itself is so horrible that it could not be um, converted by Christ's redemptive work, but rather that the sinner's hardened heart puts him or her beyond the reach of God's ordinary means of bringing forgiveness through repentance and trusting Christ for salvation. The sin is unpardonable because it cuts off the sinner from repentance and saving faith, 
through belief in the truth. And I would add to what Grudem says, it cuts them off from the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart. It grieves them. No Holy Spirit work in the heart. There's not going to be any desire to repent on that. And so, is there an unpardonable sin? Yeah, you, you grieve the Holy Spirit to the point where he says, okay, I'm done working in your heart. Um, I've heard of that happening, uh, not personally, but by testimony um, of a preacher of knowing someone who, that's what they said to them. So there was a time when the Holy Spirit worked in my heart, but I, I said no to it. Now I don't even have the desire anymore. There's nothing in me that even really cares anymore. And that, I think, is what happens to this unpardonable sin. Well, I have a few more verses on that, but you can read them on your own if you desire to. Um, Luke chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, if you would like to read some more on that. But I'm going to uh, move it along because I have about 10 minutes left, and that could allow me to... um, Whoop, maybe I wasn't... uh, Hmm, hold on. I ended up... Interesting. I might have to go by memory on those. Back. And I was thinking that was the last point until I turned to hit the clicker. I ended up with two blank pages that, and in the middle of my notes, I didn't know why they were there. I wonder if I just had a couple pages that just simply didn't print out. Okay. So I'll have to turn here and, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we've actually already touched on that. Uh, see, are there, oh, okay. Actually, no. I just, I was behind on my clicker. That's what it is. And I don't know why there's blank pages, but I was on the last one. Never mind. Okay, we are good there. Okay. Moving along. Um, now we go into our next series. So I've been trying to do just a different title slide. To me, um, PowerPoint is not there for entertainment. Um, if I'm going to use it as a teacher, it's a, it's a tool. How does it help us follow along and learn more on that? So I've been trying to change when we've gone to a different doctrine. So we were in the Doctrine of Man and I, I don't know if it, how much it helps, but I'm just kind of hoping. Each week we come in, and it helps us kind of remember that we're on this one area. And so now we're switching to a new area. We've been on the doctrine of man. We're going to now switch to the doctrine of Christ. So this is our theology series, part three, doctrine of Christ. So then this next lesson in the doctrine, or first lesson, the doctrine of Christ, go to our next slide. At the top, lesson 11, the person of Christ. Okay, now, in this lesson, it's going to be at least a two-parter, not because I don't have that much time left, but because it was going to be a two-parter anyways. Um, so we're actually going to focus on the humanity of Christ. Let's go to that next slide there. And in the humanity of Christ, looking at the first point on the slide, the virgin birth. Okay, so we're actually going to look at a number of things about the humanity of Christ. I'll just peek ahead a little bit. Christ is fully human. Jesus Christ was fully God. So we're looking at this idea, was Jesus Christ human? And so here's a number of points regarding this. The first point here is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Scripture clearly asserts that Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and without a human father. Okay, now I'll, I'll mention just a little side point. I, I don't actually, uh, I'm looking around here and I'm thinking if this is true. I know a little bit about some of your backgrounds, uh, some more than others. 
uh, but I can say I'm not sh uh, sure, and if anyone wants to share it, feel free. Um, I'm not sure if anyone in here has a Catholic background. Uh, okay, so we've got at least one. And uh, I know we have a number of people in church Catholic background. There, there are teachings of the Catholic Church that are right on, because they're biblical. Um, a lot of the teachings of the Catholic Church are biblical teachings. But um, one of the teaching, or some of the teachings of the Catholic Church, I think they run into problems. Uh, in fact, I think they run into the same problem the Pharisees ran into, and many of the Jewish re leadership during the time of Christ and before the time of Christ ran into, because some of their teachings were not from the written word of God. Uh, with the Pharisees, they were from the oral tradition of the Pharisees. And by their oral traditions, they believed it was the law of God. Uh, they had a tradition. Um, their traditions were that there was a written law of Moses, but there was an oral law of Moses. And the oral law of Moses was given orally by Moses to the people, and it was unwritten. But it was passed down from generation to generation orally. And as Jesus pointed out, he said, you make the, uh, the law of God of none effect. Uh, do you use the word law? Made the grace of God of none effect by your traditions. Uh, Jesus pointed it out, Apostle Paul pointed it out, others pointed it out, that the big problem with the Jewish leadership is they had taken, in another verse, they took the commandments of men and made it as if it was the commandments of God. And so the Pharisees had a big problem with that. So they, they said that people had to do this and that to be right with God, yet it wasn't in the word of God. Well, you, you run into the same problem, I think, with the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church has church tradition past decrees by popes, past decrees by church councils that have been elevated to the status of infallible word of God. Um, the, the, the doctrine in the Catholic Church, I don't remember the name of it, um, but it's a teaching that the pope at times speaks on behalf of God. He is God's representative on earth. He's, um, how's that sometimes worded? He's uh, um, the vicar which is a form of the word vicarious, which means a substitute. He's the vicar of Christ on earth, meaning he's Christ's substitute. He's his spokesman. And, and so at times the church says, well, when the Pope says something officially on behalf of God, it is gospel truth, as if it was in the word of God. And what that's resulted in is the same thing as the Pharisees. It's resulted in teachings being brought in that you cannot find in the word of God. Find in the Word of God any talk about purgatory. You will not find it. But it's a Catholic teaching. Um, now, this is not one of them. It'll come up maybe a little bit later. There's a, an aspect of one of the things we'll talk about, and maybe next week, um, I don't know, wherever we have to cut off. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, every uh, teaching is that way, because many of the teachings in the Catholic Church do come from the Word of God and are true. But anyways, um, I'm kind of throwing that general thought out there because I know it's going to come up as we, we go on here. Uh, but uh, the virgin birth, again, is, is uh, held to by Catholics. It's held to by us. There's an aspect of it that we'll come to in a little bit. But where does this come from? This actually comes from Scripture. And the reason I said all that is because part of what I read, which was a statement from Grudem, says Scripture clearly asserts. And that's the key. And you find it in the Scripture that the Scripture actually teaches this. Well, Matthew chapter 1, we'll take a look at some verses from Matthew 1. Matthew 1, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus was on this wise, or was in this manner, or was like this. 
When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now, um, she was espoused to Joseph before they came together. That phrase means before they had any kind of sexual relationship with each other. In other words, Mary is pregnant. Who's the dad? The scriptures make clear the dad was not Joseph because it happened before they were come together. Now, they had an official, um, uh, they were officially espoused. Uh, I'm trying to dig back into my head. This has been a phrase that's often I've had to say, okay, okay, what is it now? Okay, they were married. I mean, they're, it's, it's almost like an arranged marriage. Uh, they were officially married, but I mean, you could be like promised, married, kind of officially, but... It's, it's like, it, it's engaged, but it's married. Yeah. So anyways, um, so in their culture, they were espoused. They were married, but the wedding night hadn't happened yet. Uh, so they're, they're going to that moment. Yeah. So anyways, they're officially married in their society, but they had never had relations yet, uh, physical relations. He's not the dad, and the scriptures tell us, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And then um, another phrase in verse 20 of Matthew 1, the very end of the verse, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. It was not jo- she was not pregnant by Joseph. Joseph did not conceive this uh, child. And so the scriptures clearly teach that. Now verse 22 says, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Well, what was that prophet? That prophet was the prophet Isaiah, the Old Testament prophesied or or said ahead of time, this is the way it's going to be. What does Isaiah uh, say? Well, it's in chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the prophet Isaiah said, this woman is going to be a virgin. She will not have ever had sexual relations with any man and she's going to become pregnant. And so there's other verses besides that. Luke chapter 1, verse 35 says something similar. When an angel comes and tells Mary, the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, and the power of the highest shall overshadow you. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of you shall be called the Son of God. And so Jesus was born of a young woman, who had never had sexual relations. Now, sometimes people can say to themselves, all right, hold on. That's impossible. Women do not get pregnant without something of having happened first. But all that really tells you is this is a person that doesn't believe, either they don't believe in God or they don't believe in a God that's strong enough to do this or they don't believe in things that are possibly miraculous. That's your back to not believing in God. Um, Is this possible for a woman to get pregnant without there being a man involved? Well, yeah, if God performs a miracle and decides that's the way it's going to be. And that the the point of this first point, Jesus, um, his humanity, even though that doesn't really touch on maybe his actual humanity, um, it touches on at least, I guess, the start of it. Uh, He is born of God, and the Bible teaches clearly the virgin birth. Yeah, well, it's not that hard to believe if, yeah, if you trust God that He's powerful and can do these things. 
But with just a minute left, um, I'll just point out just a few quick things about some of the implications of the virgin birth. Um, one is, uh, and these just would be some different doctrinal thoughts that might be influenced by the thoughts. It shows that salvation ultimately must come from the Lord. Now, Jesus is our way of salvation. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. How was that salvation provided? It's provided by God. Um, his birth, his existence, Son of God. And so a second thought would be the virgin birth made possible uh, the uniting of all deity and full humanity in one person. So that will be one of the points later that um, we'll get to in a future week, is that Jesus needed to be human in God's plan of salvation. He needed to be human because he is man's representative on the cross. He dies in our place as the perfect human. He dies in our place and takes the punishment of our sin, the punishment that we deserve. And so um, in God's wisdom and his plan of salvation, a human being sacrificed is theologically an important point. Okay, another uh, topic touched on by the virgin birth. It makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. Okay, and I think I'm going to leave it at that point because I could touch on that maybe a little bit more and that'll be a good starting point next week. Um, both maybe uh, kind of reminding where we left off and getting more into that point. We've already talked about the doctrine of inherited sin. So the doctrine of the virgin birth makes it possible that that is not the case, that, that Jesus did not inherit a sin nature. Okay, we'll come back to that next week. Any closing thoughts or comments on your part?